Whoa, I just got weird. Okay. That was strange. Wait, did you say B1 and 2? Because I did as well. Um, I'll just re-record that because I got interrupted by myself <laughs> in G-Chat. Go for it. Live from the Mundangerous Bullet Farm in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 165 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're destroying the planet and then discussing life afterward as we discuss post-apocalyptic settings. But first the rogue traders learn the secrets of the Verza House in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Furiosa inspires a generation in the Character Creation Forge. Oh man, I really want to experience the magic of Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm a cave hermit who made an oath never to speak to other people again. And I want to watch a classic fantasy series like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but I can't stand the sight of human faces. Well, I want to relive the magic of make-believe, the humor of a preschool-aged child, and the genuine camaraderie of nearly 10 years of friendship through only my ears, but I don't know how! (laughs) You ignorant fools! You don't even know about... Dames and Dragons! (gasps) What? But... Dames and Dragons? What's that?! Dames and Dragons is a Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast. A a podcast? So I can experience the spontaneous group storytelling of D&D without breaking my oath of solitude? That's right. And I can take part in a rich fantasy storyline without ever having to lay eyes on a disgusting human face? Never again will the faces plague you. And it has a cast of four female friends who make constant immature jokes as they play? Absolutely. I would never lead you astray, my friend. Whether you love D&D or just love a good fantasy tale, Dames and Dragons is the podcast for you. Tells the story of three unlikely heroes who are chosen to become guardians of the goddess of their world, a floating island by the name of Estra. By God, that sounds like something I could get into. Sounds like something I'd love. Sounds like something I'd make. Well, that's just ridiculous. (laughs) Dames and Dragons, updated every second Monday, wherever podcasts are sold. Speaking of inspiration, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? The Dynasty Unwarranty campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the lush and fertile world Malajact, the Rogue Traders and the survivors of their two best companies of armsmen are recuperating in the Verza House, the beautiful fortress manor of Lord Harlock. And the Lord of the Manor has invited them to dinner. And what a dinner. I mean, really, everything tastes great after basically eating blood and ashes for a couple weeks. Yeah, <laughs> you you end up with like multiple courses of like finely and exotically prepared game and bottles of rare Amisex and you guys are like um, having like for the first time you're being treated like actual, you know, nobles and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, like we deserve. You remember that scene in The Matrix when uh, Cypher is like about to betray 
uh, people. He's like eating that steak with the with the agent. I think it was a bit like that. It was like, I don't know, should we just stay here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this world is doomed, but you know, I'm going to be dead in 50 years, whatever. Yeah, well, speaking of, you uh, <laughs> you do try to convince him uh, to change the fate of Malajact and, and prevent it from being glassed and, and exterminatist, but that fails. Um, he is uh, unwilling to, to budge on the course that they're following at the moment. But he is able to talk to you about the uh, the reason you're here, the fallen dark angel Lord Cipher. So over over the course of of this meal, you know, you guys start to piece together kind of uh, the full picture of what happened. Um, so Cipher came to Malajact um, with a, the resonant material that you guys found inside the engine. Um, if you remember, like it was those like gears and, and whirring, and it was a strange material. Um, Harlock and Jack explained that um, Cypher brought that um, and with it they built a prototype which was the engine that you guys saw in the basement um, off of these like loose ideas that were cobbled together from like research and rumor um, all with Cypher chasing down something or trying to recreate or understand something called the Ouroboros engine. Yeah that smells a lot like heresy. Well (laughs) if you think that stinks of heresy (laughs) (laughs) Just give it a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got it running. Uh, but I guess apparently the thing in the basement was just a prototype. Yeah. So Cipher is is trying. It's like a, it's like a proof of concept for Cipher. Once it's running, he goes. He does some tests and studies it a bit. Thanks them and leaves. Like it seems like he understands what's going on with this thing and has something more urgent to leave to. So Jack and Harlock, you know, they're left behind with this cool engine that's super powerful um so what do they do they start developing technology and stuff around its power source yeah like weapons i like Uh, these guys i feel like uh they're me in another life maybe (laughs) right uh the the most obvious thing that they develop is those totally rad wall guns that you use during the siege uh the the hotter hottest shot las guns as you've called them (laughs) yes the man cannons yeah uh, so they develop those. They also develop like the technology that you see around the house, like with the the glow globes that are tied to the engine and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so they they use the engine to good effect, um, but ultimately, you know, something happens here. Jack and Harlock kind of don't know what's going to happen um, at this point as you're talking to them, but you guys know that something terrible befalls them. However, that isn't going to stop Trank and Draco from taking a look at those guns one more time look they're working right now okay and what are the chances that whatever we do with i don't know maybe test firing a little bit is the specific thing that makes everything go right it's probably fine right so so trank and draco go test fire them with harlock and echo and flare uh ask jack if they can inspect the engine itself um and and how was that test range Oh, it was amazing. So remember, when we had these guns, um, they had single shot ammunition that, you know, was extremely powerful. It fired like a, this giant blast uh, that was essentially like a, a laslock, you know, one shot, um, a ton of damage. But this time, when they're actually fully powered by the engine in the basement, they just fire a continuous beam of energy that you can just strafe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out this is way cooler. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't need to worry about aiming. You just hold it down. Just hold it, it down. It eventually gets there. 
Meanwhile, uh, Echo and Flair are doing uh, real work in the basement. Uh, and they come to a rather, uh, I think at this point, expected revelation. Um, namely, that this engine is actually an, an artifact of the warp. And they can pretty quickly determine that it's actually um, heavily influenced by Zinch. Ah, which, wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, the chaos artifact in the basement. Um Based on that, uh, Flair, and knowing what he knows about the warp and sort of being a psyker, he's able to pretty quickly figure out like exactly what happened here. Um, as you all suspected, you were traveling, you were time traveling somehow. Uh, instead, it seems like you're probably communing with souls that are now trapped in the Verza house by the engine itself. Okay, we should leave. Let's get out of here. I don't. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm done. Yeah, it, and when he says that, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to give you this gun back, and, and we're going to leave now. <laughs> um, by the way, where's the door? How do we get out of here? <laughs> by the most direct, I'll, I'll take the window. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Apparently, uh, we haven't time traveled. I'm not going to die. Right. So after a bunch of arguing, um, you end up, you don't know how to get out of this. Like, you're worried that you might already be trapped, that there's no way to break this loop, right? And the best thing you can come up with is to simply destroy the engine. But before you do that, Draco decides that he wants to make sure that Echo and Flare have the right theory. So he makes a trade with Harlock. He gives him a feather from his cap uh, in exchange for an ornate hat pin, um, expecting that if they have truly traveled in time, then um, this trade will still have existed and he will be in your time timeline, uh, with his hat pin and if this is all some sort of warpy dream then he will still have his feather in his cap so everybody kind of you know like covers their uh <laughs> covers their nuts and and shies away from the the engine and Trix picks up his mighty clave and gives it a good swing straight into the engine compartment light flashes a ringing fills the entire verser house which sounds a bit like a familiar bell and we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about playing in post-apocalyptic settings. Shane, what do we mean by that? So post-apocalyptic settings almost always mean that something terrible has befallen the world, and now the world sucks. It used to be nice, or maybe just okay, but now it's terrible. And our heroes, our main characters, are lucky enough lucky enough to live after the fall of civilization usually barely scraping by uh, and they are probably sifting through the remains of the society that was looking for useful scraps um, you know fighting for or clinging to survival just by a thread and uh, and fighting for everything they have so in this episode we're going to be talking about the common themes uh, that are end up being tropes that make up these kinds of settings and that's so that you can, you know, rely on them if you're going to craft a homebrew world where something terrible has happened to a relatively normal setting. Um, and you can also lean more heavily into them uh, when you're playing in a pre-published post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah, so you can use these themes to make sure that the like underpinning themes of your published setting are really coming across for your players. So, you know, when you're playing in like a dark sun, you really feel thirsty as you're walking through the desert and you don't, you know, take, uh, take magic and, um, that sort of thing for granted. 
I mean, have you seen the art for Dark Sun? Mostly everyone's feeling thirsty. I feel thirsty as soon as I like look at the cover of Dark Sun. Uh, or something like Deadlands, uh, which is much less, um, uh, we're starving in the desert and there's no way to find food, right? Because there are towns. But it sucks in the Weird West. Mm-hmm. Things are not good. Lots of things out there trying to kill you. And uh, civilization as we know it, you know, the history of the United States has sort of um, taken a turn for the worse. I mean, they did get rid of slavery. But other than that, worse. <laughs> True. Uh, or something like rifts, where there are many varied environments. Okay, it's rifts. There's every kind of environment. But there are, you know, city-states that have, you know, high levels of technology, and there are people who, you know, live very lavish lifestyles. But as soon as you step outside those areas, you've got, I don't know, dragons and crazy creatures from beyond madness showing up and, and just being like, hey, I'm going to split you into your constituent atoms or, you know, I guess just own you. Right. Gamma World has sort of the same kind of feeling to me, even though Gamma World is a little bit more like uh, like Mad Max meets Rifts, you know? Like, it's... Everything is so mutated and so weird as a result, and, like, the society of, of Earth has completely fallen apart um, to where it's, like, unrecognizable, and it sucks. Like, the world still really kind of sucks in Gamma World. It also sucks in Apocalypse World, but I like how you can now start to see um, the spectrum of post-apocalyptic worlds, right? You have terrible places like Dark Sun, and then Apocalypse World is just sort of fun and wacky hijinks. You know, I'm half Yeti Swarm, half uh, sentient television robot, because, you know, all uh, possible realities have converged into this one, which is, I mean, probably terrible, but I don't know. Maybe I really enjoy being an octopus in a box. (laughs) (laughs) um there's also kind of more of the like hard sci-fi end of this like you can get into like eclipse phase which um exists past the fall of mankind after mankind has basically been defeated by the machines that it created yeah and and the eclipse phase and, and numenera both um are settings where things aren't necessarily terrible right now but they are they were definitely terrible in the past and they're not quite as good as they used to be in the past. You can still look back at a previous civilization that had a higher peak than the one you're currently in and see how things really got worse. And, and many of the people are still sort of suffering from those repercussions. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned Numenera. Like, Numenera is, of the settings we've mentioned so far, by far the most hopeful, right? Like, Numenera, you aren't dealing with the day-to-day struggle as much as you are in many of these other settings, but you are still kind of sifting through civilizations that were, that came before, you know, like the eight other worlds before you got to the ninth world um, that sort of inform what you do and and what you learn about the world around you. Yeah, even the fact that, I mean, don't people in Numenera call it the ninth world? Like, they Mm -hmm. know there were a bunch of others before. They didn't last. Exactly. But they're also, you know, not like scrabbling for a few drops of water in the desert in Numenera either. (laughs) Like they're all, you know, relatively comfortable uh, from a physical and social standpoint, even if they are still kind of exploring these mysteries and trying to make the world a a better place. So in the last, what, 20 years or so, there've been a proliferation of these kinds of stories being told, particularly in, in media, film, things like that. 
Uh, and they serve as inspiration for uh, a lot of different kinds of games. Uh, Mad Max obviously originally came out in the 80s, but the most recent incarnation was what, 2015? Was it the 80s? Was it the late 70s? Uh, whenever Mel Gi- Before Mel Gibson grew his mullet. So a, while, a long time ago. I, yeah, I think like the first Mad Max was like 79, but nobody really thinks of that one. Everyone thinks of Mad Max 2, right? Um, there's also like video games like Fallout, um, another series that has like lived a surprisingly long time, like multiple decades, um, where you know we are living in a post-nuclear war America uh, that is basically unrecognizable except for the shape of the map. And I think that maybe some of our younger listeners don't actually remember, but there was a time when zombie fiction was not common. It wasn't all <laughs> over the place. Yeah, it wasn't on you know every Thursday night certainly, right. um, but yeah, zombies are definitely like a core piece of post-apocalypse. Yeah, and they haven't; they're not going anywhere, right? Like they weren't a flash in the pan. Um, you know, vampires go in and out, but man, I think zombies are here to stay. They might be old hat now, but <laughs> if you tell a zombie story, everyone gets it. Yeah, so you have things like uh, like you said, Thursday nights, The Walking Dead, um, stories like I Am Legend, um, which is actually way predates like the film genre of zombies um and like more modern i think world war z is a good example of zombie fiction that kind of looks at uh, especially what society looks like after the fall um and how like the remnants sort of from a nationalist perspective all kind of take a different approach towards dealing with this apocalypse yeah when you examine these kinds of media you can see how they get refreshed just by sort of swapping out um, antagonists or, you know, reasons for the apocalypse. Look at something like um, Planet, of the, Planet of the Apes, where, like, the zombies are just monkeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, we just, we got out-evolved, right? <laughs> like, nature moved on past humans. And you can think about that if you're creating one of these settings as well. You know, you can make something that seems really original by just tweaking one or two things. Well funny you should mention that why don't we talk about what some of these like levers or variables that you can consider and that you can tweak um to kind of mix up your setting well so the first one is going to be what caused your apocalypse and i think these days probably the most common one is going to be some sort of war especially nuclear war yeah and i think you can also put just any broad environmental destruction into the same category right like nuclear war was sort of always what everyone thought since the 50s but it turns out we might not ever fight the war we're probably still going to destroy the earth yeah it sort of ends up in the same situation like uh you know if all the cities are destroyed okay people will continue to live out in the countryside but (laughs) when when the whatever ozone layer or uh the tides or the earth's magnetic field or the core stops spinning or whatever um there's not really anywhere to run right there's also things like plague and disease. Um, I, I mean, I think typical of these, what makes these apocalypses important to the genre is mostly that like a majority of humanity is destroyed in the process, right? So plague and disease are a great way of doing that, um, of which zombies are typically a subset. Yeah, it turns uh, the dead into the antagonists Uh, it's sort of a nice way of saying okay we're removing most of the other people so that the uh, protagonists the player characters can be movers and shakers in the world you know because you're 
one of the few survivors, but at the same time, we've been able to introduce uh, plenty of fodder for you to both run away from and destroy. Right. Aliens are kind of the same way, except that they, th- they tend to be much more high-powered versions of zombies, right? There's kind of faceless terrors. You never know exactly where they're going to show up. But usually when they do show up um, in the story, they kill most of the Earth's population. And then a few sur- plucky survivors are, are here to like take them on with their MacBooks. Right, yeah. You either lead the resistance against the aliens or like the aliens usually like just mine the earth for resources and leave, right? And you're left with the scarred husk of a world that has basically been killed by alien visitors and then you've just been left here. And then my favorite catch-all is just um, supernatural destruction. This is your four horsemen of the apocalypse, your Ragnarok. Um, You can put even like there are subsets of the the other reasons like plague or disease, you know, a, a divinely sent plague, of course, or something like uh, why the last man, I think, technically had like a supernatural origin for the plague that kills every male thing on the planet. Yeah. And I think in your more like fanta- like your fantastical base settings, supernatural is a good category for like, you know, um, a group of warlocks completed an evil ritual or, you know, a band of adventurers unearthed a terrible artifact or you know um magic drained all of the life force from the planet and now it is a dry husk uh looking at you dark sun hey uh where would you find a group of adventurers who either accidentally caused or maybe failed to stop a terrible ritual that destroyed the entire world uh, not certainly not in one of our games. No, no, and certainly not in the previous party that your group was playing in. <laughs> right (laughs) like we haven't mentioned this yet but post-apocalyptic games are a great follow-up to a previous game that didn't turn out exactly like everyone planned right yeah that's a that's a fun way to let a party punch way above its weight class end the campaign and then transition into a new one right like oh yeah no you guys did a great job you destroyed the world okay we're gonna play in that world now you made your planet now you're gonna live in it here's your map of Faerun I improved it (laughs) you'll notice there's a lot more sand (laughs) it's it's not difficult to improve a map of Faerun right I just erased a lot of towns there's still a lot of towns but you know saved a lot of trouble there so another lever to think through is um, how much time has elapsed since the, the apocalypse occurred um you know like this could could be set immediately afterwards like that's where a lot of zombie fiction starts is like when the zombie disease first takes hold um but it could even be like just you know within a few years of that where lots of survivors still have firsthand memories of what the world was like before it fell yeah i like how um when you're moving all of these levers each one becomes a subset of some other choice that you've made like a world where the surface of the earth is still mostly irradiated because thermonuclear war happened six months ago is very, very different from one that happened two generations ago. And, you know, the environmental effects aside, you're wondering or you're thinking about, you know, the survivors. Are they people who remember what the world was like before it was terrible? Are they, do they remember the apocalypse itself or are these just stories they've heard? Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, you can go even further into the future where um, the history of the world is actually just, like, almost legendary. 
like no one even believes it like it could almost have become religion sort of the way like dark sun treats it where um defiling kind of destroyed the world so long ago that nobody really knows why or how or when or what was going on other than like yeah life sucks now yeah i like how you know depending on the the reason for your apocalypse you can get into these situations where you're kind of in an in-between state like i think of something like handmaid's tale where like the world still exists the infrastructure still exists but the environment where the story is taking place like it's essentially a husk of our current society you know there are cars and electricity but it's the people and society that has changed and at the same time the past has been almost completely erased you have people who are like 10 years old who do not remember what it was like for you know women to have rights in any way right, right. Like that that is an apocalypse but a like a quieter and sometimes more like devastating one well that's i mean handmaid's tale is more like dystopian which certainly has some crossover with post-apocalyptic but like i think that is sort of a, a separate genre right well if you look at like parts of the united states have also been irradiated you can play in the colonies for example where like you can't really go outside your teeth are going to fall out yeah okay that's fair but you can, you know, expand this all the way back to maybe this happened, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of years ago, something like Numenera, where... Billions in Numenera, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the previous world is just a legend. I mean, if even that, right, it's extremely unreliable. People have stories. Mm-hmm. I, that's how 40K is as well, which is... I, there's almost too many apocalypses in Warhammer 40K to yeah. really consider it <laughs> post-apocalyptic. But, you know, nobody remembers, like, the Earth. They only remember... Terra, right. which is, you know, Earth after many, many, many terraformings. Right. Uh, or, you know, there's so many invasions, like, okay, which time the world was destroyed? <laughs> or, or which time that, like, evil chaos god was birthed into existence? <laughs> like, which time that unmistakable, like, galaxy-ending evil was awoken? <laughs> oh, third edition. Okay. I see, yeah, I see what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, well, so be, speaking of 40K, uh, it's also important to think about, like, what is the value of the technology that was ubiquitous before the apocalypse? Um, you know, one of the sort of main goals that many 40K characters have is to discover technology from the dark age of technology, because it is so much more powerful than what is normally and readily available in the current setting. Yeah. And then I think in more, like, grounded, less fantastical settings, it's things like you know, the means of production may have been destroyed. So um, simple technologies, like just even like firearms, right, are super valuable uh, in like Mad Max, uh, simply because no one knows where a gun factory is going to pop up next or whether that technology has really just been lost amongst the survivors. So if you have a gun, you hoard it. Now, you may be keeping that gun in uh, an impregnable vault, but you also might have absolutely no idea how it works or how to use it or how to make another one. Mm -hmm. I always like the idea that uh, you can play this one of two ways. It can be sort of a MacGuffin artifact from the old days where like the party doesn't know and maybe you as a GM don't even know either. Uh, Or it can be this bit of dramatic irony where everyone is sort of playing characters who have no idea like what a laser is. Right. Yeah. If you're far enough removed, like education just doesn't exist for that because the the concept is so foreign. Right. It's a death ray, of course. 
Um, so in terms of how you value that technology, right? Like in in settings, a lot of times this scales just along with the distance from the fall itself. Um, so that technology might still be common, um, though I think tropally speaking, it's usually like difficult to maintain or it's being hoarded by a few select groups or, you know, it's like one of those things that people instantly go to war over when it's discovered. Yeah, which means you usually need to keep it secret, right? Not just guarded, but secret or otherwise, yeah, you have an impregnable vault, but you probably don't have impregnable walls around where you live because you probably don't live in the vault. Although, you know, maybe you should. That'd be smart, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you go like a few decades or even centuries removed, like that type of technology could become legendary or, as you said, like almost like fantasy. Like it's not a laser, which was a relatively common thing in uh 2018 it's a death ray like which is a very rare thing in 2060 and we don't understand how it works other than we have to plug it into this battery what's a battery oh it's that thing that sometimes you have to heat up in a fire to give it more juice oh it's not like a a tree on its side like a battery ram we have a lot of those not that it's very confused (laughs) we need a scholar someone who's been to third grade um, and then in other settings, technology itself can be replaced with magic or like weird science. Um, that's certainly the case with like rifts in Gamma World. Yes, weird science. In the old days, we used to be able to create French women from the internet, where we would just put our phone into a strange dialer and then download her in eight or nine bits. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is a bit? <laughs> It's uh, an eighth of a gold piece, obviously. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So you're also going to want to consider exactly how dangerous your world is. You know, in something like Numenera, yeah, there are dangerous places, but there are many places that are very idyllic. Whereas in Mad Max, everything is trying to kill you. Everything and everyone is trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. Mainly because, you know, you are edible or mostly you're 70% water. Or you probably have something near you that is edible, and I would like to eat that before you do. So, yeah, so there's a few different, like, levels of of danger to think about. So one is just, like, the simple, like, availability of of survival resources, right? Like, food and water. Um, There are plenty of post-apocalyptic settings where that's not really a challenge. Um, But then again, there are plenty where that is the sole focus, is where do I get my next meal and where do I get my next drink? Then there are, of course, the natural threats. Um, If the environment was destroyed, you're probably dealing with plenty of storms or, you know, inhospitable environments. Uh, Or it could just be giant apex predators that now eat people or ate all the people. (laughs) Yeah. And then just moving further along the scale, you've got like the supernatural or existential threats, things like zombies or aliens or irradiated super predators that, you know, haunt the wastelands. And I think this is kind of a scale um, determining like what kind of game you're playing and maybe what like power level you're playing. You know, if you have characters who are still eking out an existence, trying to you know dig a well or, or waiting for rain, then you're probably playing something relatively low level, right? Like think about something like Sword and Sorcery, Conan the Barbarian. They don't have very much. Uh, the world is mostly a terrible place, but they're mostly not worrying about where they're going to find water, right? Right. Um, once you're sort of facing, you know giant hurricanes and running from those you're not worrying about your your day-to-day but you are dealing with um you know a a threat per story arc 
Whereas the giant existential supernatural threats are things that you can spend an entire campaign facing and that may still really threaten you, even if you are extremely powerful. Fallout actually does a good job since since it is an adjacent game um, of like kind of leading you through like first you're just scrounging for basic resources and then you get kind of like you have to master the environment and then you have to master like the true threats of the world like you know uh, irradiated monsters and mutants and um, most importantly of course other people yeah that's the threat that is difficult to deal with at every power level because there are always people who are on your level or above it who you need to contend with. Because, of right. course, man's inhumanity to man is really what we're, the story that we're telling in a post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah, a lot of times. We'll talk about those themes in just a bit. Um, so then another variable that comes about in these settings is the, like, the nature and the prevalence of organized societies. So you could have things like the remnants of past governments, um, you know, like uh, World War Z, for example, like kind of takes a tour around the world of like what each government did in response to zombies and uh, and like how they each adapted to it also informed how much of that government and society still survives today. You also want to examine the uh, new groups that popped up, whether that is some sort of adaptation of old power groups um, Dune, I think, is like 10,000 years in the future, but, you know, you get this, like, the Orange Catholic Church, which is, like, has a passing resemblance to the current Catholic Church, but you mm-hmm. can see uh, the ties that uh, Frank Herbert is sort of drawing between the two. You know, they're recognizable. They're just tropey enough that you can actually uh, know how to respond to them in your post-apocalyptic game. Yeah, and then depending on your power level, right, like, you could also be talking about a local gang of bandits is the power group in this local area um, that you have to deal with, right? Either they are attacking you and raiding you or they're forcing you to pay them tribute um, or they might just be, you know, killing you and leaving you for dead by the side of the road. Yeah. And maybe they have a name like the baseball furies, you know, something that inspires (laughs) terror. Yes, indeed. Maybe they're led by Tina Turner. (laughs) They force you to fight in an arena. Um, I want to play in this game. Okay, this, me too. <laughs> this sounds great. All right, it's Hunger Games, uh, led by Tina Turner. Uh huh. Um, I, I will say one thing. I think you find often with these kind of organized groups is they tend to be um, like organized in two ways. They're either like very naively ideal, um, like idealistic, where you know they try to be a perfect democracy, or they try to have like you know uh recreating like the uh greek republic or something like that where they have this real dedication to an ideology that clearly won't survive contact with the outside world like if they weren't existing behind a wall they couldn't um or the flip side is you have these dystopian like authoritarian governments that offer security but completely remove freedom from the people who come under their purview yeah i like how basically in most of these settings, everyone has gone insane. Like, the world is so terrible, there's not really a way to sort of deal with it unless you wholly devote yourself to some kind of ideal that would not work in a normal society. Right, right. Did you ever see that Ray Liotta movie, No Escape? I did not, but I don't apologize for not seeing any <laughs> Ray Liotta movie. 
<laughs> he gets put on this island of prisoners, right, where it's supposed to be sort of like Lord of the Flies, but it is basically the prisoners have divided themselves up into those two groups, like the crazy anarchists who, like, murder each other for no reason and for bits of food, and then, like, the peaceful society that has built a giant palisade <laughs> to keep everyone out mm-hmm. and is essentially a giant commune, and, you know, the two are at war, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is also, like, every place they visit in The Walking Dead, right? Like, yeah. like every season, there's just something that it's just like, these these people are going to die. I mean, obviously, Rick and the group of survivors are terrible, but, like, and everything they touch falls apart. But, like, these people are too stupid to survive this, this apocalypse, right? I mean, yeah, it's basically um, a world history textbook, you know, first and second year, and we're just walking through the different uh, political belief systems. Yeah, exactly. Like every every stupid city state that had a uh, had a chance at self governance and then right. got subsumed eventually by the Greeks or the Romans. <laughs> this is Sparta two. Um, right. Let's see how this turns out. Right. <laughs> Likewise, you know, you'll want to think about um, the nature and prevalence of the antagonist groups. Uh, we mentioned like it could be a local group of bandits or whatever, but um, you do want to think about how humans are organized. Um, as antagonists to the characters so are they raiders and bandits um, are they authoritarian regimes are they like um, military remnants that have um, obviously the ability to just destroy things that stand in their path you know like think through what those groups look like as well you know when you're considering all of these different facets of what the setting looks like think about how it will have shaped your characters you know if there are marauding tribes everywhere you look who are out to kill you as soon as they find you does that make you more paranoid um does that make you more watchful does does it mean that everyone in the party has invested in perception or has taken the alert feed or something like that because that's the only way you would actually stay alive Mm -hmm. you know how does it affect your psyche how does it affect your outlook speaking of your outlook every post-apocalyptic setting is going to have some source of hope for people within it, even if that hope is completely misguided. Yeah, I, aka plot hooks, right? What is it that the, that the heroes are going to be doing in this setting? Uh, here's this little girl who has a map on her back. I think we should follow it. Right. <laughs> also, we should probably make sure that she doesn't get killed or kidnapped. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, almost always that map is allegedly leading to um, some mythical place that is like a, an enclave that hasn't been tainted by the apocalypse or some sanctuary that will welcome whoever finds it with open arms, you know, that kind of uh, Valhalla or Shangri-La kind of um, location. Yeah, just the fact that we have so many different words for those kinds of refuges. Yeah. <laughs> shows how common that trope is in human society. Right. Another kind of source of hope is mastery. Um, so the way that characters try to um, pick up the pieces of this damaged and broken society and rebuild it in their image, um, sort of become the overlords of the environment. Yeah, I'm going to build a statue of myself out of sand. <laughs> well, I mean... If you can build a statue of yourself out of sand, it means that you have workers and probably like a functioning city and some sort of economy and uh, probably a standing army of some sort. So like, yeah, I mean, good for you. That's right. If you've got time to build a sand statue, a sand castle, if you will. Yeah, I'll put my face on on it. And, you know, maybe it's not me, right? Like I I could stand to lose a few pounds, but maybe 
I'm a big cat. Like oh, a really great. tall, giant cat. <laughs> do you ask riddles as well? <laughs> of course. Of course I do. It also might be that, you know, you fully understand that nothing's going to get better. So if you're going to live in this shit heap, you're going to be on top of it. And everyone else is going to be crushed under your very gross boots. Yep. This is the, uh, like, scoundrel game in the post-apocalypse, right? Like, we want our gang to be in charge because it's our gang, (laughs) not for any higher ideal. And also, do you know what happens if they're in charge? Exactly. (laughs) I don't want to find out. for us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think the source of hope that has the most kind of drive for characters, especially in RPGs, is some type of purpose or mission um, that they mean to achieve and the uh, like the setting the trapping of the settings are just sort of what stands in their way of achieving it so this could be something like fixing the apocalypse yeah what are you here to do we're here to save the world i'm here to cure zombieism you know it's just a disease don't no don't please don't kill them we can definitely cure the- oh well i guess they're missing their lower half yeah i, I just want to be clear in the zombie apocalypse like the first person who says don't hurt them they're just people we can cure them i'm shooting that guy in the head (laughs) yeah but now you have another zombie good job shane not if you shoot him in the head also (laughs) the second rule of zombie land double tap (laughs) look in my post-apocalyptic setting um destroying the brain just creates more zombies many tiny zombies well i'm not playing in your setting then that's a bummer no you should not Mm -mm. Um, I mean, this is basically the plot of the Will Smith version of I Am Legend, right? He's uh, like only surviving in um, New York in an attempt to try and figure out the cure. Yeah, or uh, what is that uh, movie, Book of Eli, where like, you know, the only reason people really have is to get a book to a guy. Well, I mean, that's kind of like his divine calling, right? Yeah, exactly. He has a higher purpose other than yeah, just survival. Right, right. But um, it's what well, it's Gary Oldman who wants to use it for evil, right? I mean, it is Gary Oldman. I would expect nothing less, <laughs> right? <laughs> also, if you are playing in a post-apocalyptic setting, it is extremely helpful to tie your personal survival to a divine calling. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, we've got a a very specific mission here that we've been told to accomplish. But in order to accomplish it, I need to stay alive. Like you, you really want to avoid the ones where it's, ah, oh, we must all sacrifice ourselves for this mission. <laughs> it's critical for us to die for this cause. <laughs> <laughs> it's short lived. <laughs> That's a bad divine calling. <laughs> um, though, though you mentioned like a mission, um, following orders is another good kind of like purpose to have. Um, you know where it's like we need to get this important person across the wasteland right like escort duty is a perfectly valid kind of driver especially for early campaigns for characters of like this is important for a reason you have been tasked with doing this like you must fight whatever attempts to impede you yeah i really like purpose as something you really need to consider for both pcs and npcs because it works so well for them especially the like last lingering purpose maybe even from before the apocalypse right we're, we're kind of playing this in our dark sun game where we are you know a, a company from a city that has long since disappeared but we are still sort of following the legendary orders that we were last given mm-hmm. which is basically don't break a contract and don't 
die. Don't die, right? Um, but I also love that, like, you know, antagonists or even other people that you, you might meet are sort of still following the last orders that they were given, like old AI or robots or threshing machines or whatever that have been horribly changed um, or maybe, like, don't care about the apocalypse at all and are simply just doing exactly what they were doing before the apocalypse. But now it has taken on very strange undertones given the new situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love those. Those are Those are great because they are they make sense right it's reasonable why this um automatic security system is still trying to kill you even though you're trying to rescue the person trapped inside right all right so as you're playing there are definitely some themes that you're going to want to touch on or that you may notice as the game progresses so the most obvious one i think is scarcity um (laughs) almost always your resources end up being hoarded and carefully rationed and and nervously spent if you're running the game this is something you you're going to want to point out you know how many of those do you have left uh make sure you uh mark that down that you used it up and if you're playing um make sure that you are role playing the emotional cost of using up something that you either will never get back or that will be very difficult for you to replenish Mm mm-hmm and then as a result of that, you know, the difficulty in replenishing is, of course, driven by the need for scavenging, for banditry, for raiding, you know, all of those types of, you know, seeking out and then stealing uh, as ways of getting those resources you need. Yeah, every time I use a grenade, we are one step closer to having to uh, go back on another raid to get more grenades yeah like as soon as we run out of grenades we got to go back to that ammo depot and deal with that stupid security system that is automated that we cannot bypass <laughs> maybe this time you could hack it and change the last order dude what is hacking i've never seen a keyboard in my life <laughs> i think maybe it's called slicing but then there's this thing called bread i don't know it has something to do with that <laughs> Um, another theme that often comes up is sort of correlated with the scarcity issue is simply that existence, that life is a struggle. Um, you know, death can come at any time for anyone in the party. Um, life is often a cheap commodity. Yeah, sometimes much more cheap than tangible things that can last a very long time, like weapons or directions. Mm-hmm. You know, people are often just another resource. Right. Um, ideally you don't want to be just another resource as a as a player character but sometimes that falls on you you just got to get your resume in order you know so they can see that you have plenty of skills (laughs) right i would like to speak to human resources right how terrible would it be if there was an apocalypse and the only thing that lasted was linkedin (laughs) (laughs) my my severance pay has been much shorter after i got my hands severed (laughs) it's strange we had to completely reorder society based on the number of connections you had Right. <laughs> so another theme that'll come up is the weirdness and, and foreignness of this new social order. Yeah, the one governed by LinkedIn connections. It's horrible and awful. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's miserable. <laughs> Why are we voting with Facebook likes? This makes no sense. Um, but all of the artifice of society falls down because the, the basic level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs fails to be met. Like the skills that are required to be successful in this post-apocalyptic world uh, are not the same skills that were useful pre-fall. You know, it's like farming versus finance. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the kind of world you end up with, it could be one or the other. If like 
the automated granaries still work. It could actually be finance is the only thing that matters. That is like the true post-apocalyptic setting that I would love to write. Oh, dear (laughs) Lord, right? One like equals one mouthful of rice. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Finance bros against darkness. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of eclipse phase, right? It's like everything is based on your rep score, you know, like how popular you are on certain social networks. Right. There's no money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in, In the more grounded settings, though, like, you know, survival skills, military skills, criminal skills, um, medicine, and like a lot of trades become very, very valuable because they're used to like actually survive and reshape and rebuild the world. Right. Medicine is like that one skill that totally flips, right? In a traditional D&D setting, who takes medicine? It is useless. Mm-hmm. You've got magic. Uh, but in the post-apocalypse, psh, <laughs> everyone yeah. should be taking medicine. Right. Um, likewise, like intellectuals, politicians, you know, professionals, like no one really needs an accountant in the post-apocalypse. Yeah. Except for that one lucky politician who is now a demagogue. Right. Who will be discarding all the other politicians, obviously. (laughs) So nothing's changed. Right. Another theme that often comes up is this question, as we touched on earlier, like who are the real monsters of this setting? You know, like, um, are the zombies the monster or is it what people do to each other that makes them the greater monster? Or, like in I Am Legend, is it the player characters? <laughs> Wait, that's only in um, in the novel version. Uh, yeah, didn't they, like, screw it up or something? I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. Will Smith yeah, is not no, canon. The Will Smith version is very bad. No, the, the book is great, actually. Uh, anybody should check that one out, but the the movie version isn't so good. Nor is it true to it. Sometimes I like to really play this straight where like the real monsters are actually like the real monsters. That's like Deadlands, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The monsters are just the roaming threats in this vast swaths of the old West of the weird West. (laughs) And like, you know, weird scientists using ghost rock to perform their experiments and stuff like that. Oh, it turns out it really is the people. No, it's, it's the weird science. It's the ghost rock and the souls of the damned. Right. (laughs) It's, it's the literal infernally powered machine. Yeah. Let's shoot it. (laughs) Um, So another theme, and and this one is probably where Numenera leans in the heaviest, is this concept of exploring both time and space. Um, So as you're exploring the map and the physical world, you're also exploring the way that it ties to the history of the world, right? So as you're uncovering artifacts or um, like recordings or whatever, you're gaining knowledge about the past um, that can be applied in the present. And lastly, you know, probably the most fun thing about playing in the post-apocalypse is that you have full license to just embrace the weirdness of the setting, whatever is different or strange. Yeah, like no one sat and said, hey, you know what makes no sense? Why are they driving a big rig in the middle of the desert in Fury Road? Everyone was like, oh, no, that car is awesome. They just took a bunch of cars and stacked them on top of each other and gave them huge engines. And then, like, a crew of war boys. Why are they called war boys, by the way? Doesn't matter. Like, just a crew of war boys to man them with, like, explosive spears that they ride around on dirt bikes with. It's it's too weird to even question, right? It's just cool you just lean into it. Yeah, hey, is this awesome? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Let's go with this. I love it. I mean, that's basically how riffs happened, right? Oh, my God. Okay, yeah, maybe that's a little too far. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> know your limits. 
Maybe ask multiple people what's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Right, not just yourself. Right. So to wrap this up, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about the post-apocalypse is that you are touching on a lot of the same themes or or tropes or elements that you find in other settings, but you can mash them together in ways that it's much more difficult to do in a more uh, modern or ordered setting, right? Like if you think about it, the apocalypse is when everything fell apart, when everything was sort of swept aside and then cast together in strange new configurations, whether that's the entire landscape, the weather, planets, society, people, you can combine them however you want and you have a built-in excuse for why it's like that. And yeah, it, it may not have come about that way. Like there may have been no way for that to have come about naturally or normally. It could not have developed or evolved into this situation. And that's the whole point. It, it is um, a setting that you couldn't get any other way, but through catastrophe. Yeah. And I think what makes it especially fun from a game perspective is that you can put kind of otherwise arbitrary limitations on what characters can do um, in order to drive them towards like that fun and exciting narrative, right? Like no one gets to just check their cell phone in the post-apocalyptic world, right? Like very simple conveniences kind of get taken off the table and the characters have to innovate in this weird environment of how to overcome what they take for granted in the real world. Yeah. Why do you think screenwriters keep writing post-apocalyptic stories? Oh, because Hollywood keeps buying them. (laughs) And because they can just make up rules. Right. (laughs) Speaking of making up rules, do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, That's the sound of uh, an implausible combustion engine here in the wasteland, but (laughs) there it is. Well, (laughs) let's uh, move on to the character creation forge and find out who's piloting that engine. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week on the Character Creation Forge, we are building... Imperator Furiosa from the most recent Mad Max movie as portrayed by Charlize Theron. Yeah, so Imperator Furiosa is one of Immortan Joe's most gifted lieutenants who commands a war rig and a host of war boys before she kidnaps Joe's favorite wives and attempts to escape to the fabled Green Place um, along with uh, an unexpected passenger by the name of Mad Max. Oh, man, those uh, was Joe's favorite wives, his very favorite wives. Yeah, well, Joe kind of sucks. <laughs> so don't don't pour one out for old Joe. Well, he gets his. He also has the worst name. Like, there's, like, the bullet farmer, like, Mad Max. He's just Joe. Yeah, you know, in the grim darkness of the far future of Australia, uh, Joe is a very uh, impressive name because few people have it. <laughs> I guess, because it's just few people. Yeah, first they came for the Joes, and I did not speak up. (laughs) Okay, Shane, what's the build? Uh, So the build is Rogue One, Ranger 8, Battlemaster Fighter 11. Uh, That's Hunter Ranger 8. 
it is nice to see the return of Rogue One. I missed you, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, so Furiosa is, uh, uh, to no surprise of anybody who has ever seen Charlize Theron, uh, a half-elf. And she's got a fair number of feats, which um, you could probably pick up from the fact that we've got so many fighter levels and, um, you know, multiples of four in the build. Right. Uh, she's going to use Crossbow Master, which is going to let her reload a hand crossbow, which is going to let her fire a hand crossbow more than one time uh, in the same round. And it's also going to let her do it in melee combat without taking disadvantage on the attack. Then she's also going to get Elven Accuracy, uh, which is why she has to be a half-elf. Um, if you recall, Ishan, there was a moment in the uh, in Fury Road where Max takes a couple shots in the dark at a headlamp, misses with the sniper rifle, and then begrudgingly gives it to Furiosa in order to take the shot herself. She doesn't kill anybody with it, so it's not a, a sharpshooter, but she does nail that headlamp uh, which turns out to blind the guy who's riding behind it she'll also pick up mounted combatant now there aren't any horses in mad max but there certainly are vehicles that you fight while mounted on bikes for example yeah so if your gm isn't fun enough to let you use uh (laughs) use mounted combatant for whatever whatever those things are in your world uh have them dm us yeah, seriously. Also, we're uh, reflavoring quite a bit of things here. For example, uh, you're going to uh, carry a shield in your left arm, but you're just going to call that your cybernetic left arm. Yeah, I'm I'm really proud of ourselves for not highlighting the fact that she is only one-armed. Uh, she is technically like a disabled character uh, as a main hero in fiction, and yet like that is nowhere near her defining property. She just like has the arm that she occasionally has to fall out of uh, and use as like a weapon or a shield or whatever. Um, and she just beats the shit out of Mad Max with one arm, and it's great. She's probably able to do that because she has the soldier background. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we are going to tweak that background a bit by changing one of the tool proficiencies you pick up to land vehicles, because guess what? She's really good at driving them. Yeah, she drives. She drives real good. All right, so let's get into the levels. Uh, obviously, whenever we take Rogue One, we are here for expertise. One of which is going to be in land vehicles. The other, mm, I think we agreed on athletics. Yeah, athletics or, I mean, acrobatics is probably the more powerful one, as you said, just because she's likely to have high decks anyway. Um, but she is pretty darn athletic uh, in her own right. Yeah, she's more smashy than dodgy, really. Yeah. Yeah. All right, from Hunter, eight levels, we'll get two ASIs, uh, which, you know, depending on what level you're taking those at, uh, you'll spend on getting your dexterity to 20 or on those many feats. You'll get favorite enemy. I think we're going to take humans and, again, a bit of reflavoring, war boys. Yeah, so which are basically like goblins or orcs, probably. You'll also get natural explorer, which, of course, you will choose the desert terrain because, (laughs) you know... In Mad Max, there's only the Australian (laughs) Outback. No other place on Earth exists. Uh, Yeah, and I think you should lobby for being able to pick desert because, like, it's usually not a very useful ability. Right. (laughs) Uh, You'll also take the archery fighting style. That'll give you that plus two when you um, make a ranged weapon attack. And you'll get Colossus Slayer, which lets you deal extra damage to a creature that has already been damaged. 
And then you'll also take Escape the Horde, which gives your enemies disadvantage on opportunity attacks against you. Um, I just like Colossus Layer and Escape the Horde because that's basically the plot of uh, Fury Road in a nutshell. Like, first she has to escape all of Joe's boys and allies chasing her, uh, and then she turns around and kills Joe. So it's pretty sweet. Spoiler. (laughs) Well, yeah, fair enough. It got nominated for an Oscar. That one's not on me. It's three years old. Now, our Furiosa is a capable combatant. Uh, She'll get three attacks, and as a Battlemaster, she'll get maneuvers. We'll probably take the usual, Commander Strike and Riposte, plus maybe Tripping Attack. I mean, she does kind of do a cool Tripping Attack against Joe, or uh, against Max, so I feel like that's flavorful. Sweep the leg. For leveling order, of course, we're going to start Rogue One, and then I think we'll do Fighter to Six to pick up extra attack and two ASIs. Then polish off your ranger, and then finish off your fighter. Sort of your capstone is your third attack. I like that. All right, so before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. If you leave us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Just like this. This is called You Did This by Josh Rint. Because of this podcast, Eberron has leaked into all my RPGs. The Day of Mourning has become a running plot point in my Pathfinder campaign set on Galarian. These hosts are fantastic, and I've gone back and listened to the back catalog at least twice. It makes great mini-painting background noise. Thank you for all the great content on a weekly basis. Always excited when Thursday rolls around and I have a new TPT. Five stars. Thank you, Josh. I said Eberron. It technically says Everton. No, that is um, <laughs> that is the iPhone autocorrect. I have run into that problem myself. <laughs> is that a soccer thing? Soccer team, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess you and Josh have something in common. I'm sorry, Josh. <laughs> yeah, we both have iPhones that talk about Eberron. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about how to make diseases matter. And in the character creation forge? We're building the Rangerer. Well, that's it for episode 165 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you by our friends at Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press publishes the Creature Codex, a 5th uh, edition sourcebook which brings you nearly 400 new foes, everything from acid ants to zombie lords. I believe the acid ants were written by none other than James Intricasso, who founded Don't Split the Podcast Network, which we are on right now. It is, in fact, the network on which you are listening to us. You've tuned in to DSPN. You can also find a dozen new demons and five new angels within those pages. There are wasteland dragons and dinosaurs. Are there wasteland dinosaurs, do you think? Mm-mm. Nope. Dinosaurs aren't welcome in the wasteland. Everyone knows that. Dragons guard that very carefully. They need too much water to support their giant bulk. Uh, I'm sorry. I am body shaming dinosaurs and I should not be doing that. Mm-hmm. Also, like dinosaurs don't bring any treasure. Only occasionally do they bring riders. What? Uh, but they are treasure in and of themselves because they can, you can use them as like construction cranes or washing machines or sirens. Mm-hmm. You can also do that, I bet, with uh, the all-new golems in the Creature Codex, including the Altar Flame Golem, the Doom Golem, and the Keg Golem. 
I when I hear that I think cake golem, which also is very exciting. Yeah, I mean I would I would definitely eat a cake golem. <laughs> I don't know that I would guard my dungeon with it, but you know, that's how you get ants. <laughs> Acid ants. Acid ants. <laughs> You can also find elemental lords and animal lords to challenge your more powerful party members. Yeah, chieftains and other leaders for rat folk are in the book, as well as centaurs, goblins, trollkin, and more. There are new undead, including the Hierophant Lich, to menace your lower level characters. And in addition to creating the Acid Ant, James Intercasso designed, well, a great deal of it. He like, has a name in the credits. So you can use the monsters from the Creature Codex in your favorite published setting or populate the dungeons in a world of your own creation. You can pick it up on the Cobalt Press website and surprise your players with monsters they won't be expecting. And as always, there's a link in the show notes.